0: Support for the gray area comes from Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen.
2: Trump has risen to Reagan's level in the eyes of many conservatives, and I know that might stun a lot of the audience, but if Trump wins reelection, he will be at the same uh, level as Reagan, I think, in the minds of a lot of Republicans.
3: Hello and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Jane Coston. I am senior politics reporter with a focus on conservatism and the GOP. And today I have a very interesting conversation with Matthew Continetti. He is editor-in-chief of The Washington Free Beacon, a conservative publication based in D.C., He is very thoughtful and knowledgeable about the intellectual history that has provided the backbone of the conservative movement as we know it. We talked about Ronald Reagan, Donald Trump, the beginnings of the new right, what neoconservatism was, is, and isn't, and a host of other subjects. And I thought it was a really interesting and informative conversation As always, you can email the show at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. And without further ado, here is Matthew Contenetti. Matthew Contenetti, welcome to the podcast. First and foremost, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and the research you're doing on the history of intellectual conservatism?
2: Sure. Well, I'm the editor of the Washington Free Beacon. It's a conservative online newspaper. We founded it in 2012. Before that, I was a writer and editor for the Weekly Standard magazine, now defunct. Uh, But I had done that since I graduated from Columbia in 2003. And I found that I had a special characteristic while I was at the Weekly Standard. I was the only member of the staff who had read every issue of the Weekly Standard because they had these beautiful set of bound volumes and trying to familiarize myself with my craft, I went through them all and thus developed an interest in the history of The conservative intellectual movement, uh, which is really now in its, um, well, I guess if you date it with the publication in America of The Road to Serfdom uh, in 44, 45, it's now almost uh, 70, 75 years old.
3: So you take it from The Road to Serfdom. I think a lot of people, when you think about a figure, say like William F. Buckley, they date it to God and Man at Yale. Mm -hmm. Though it's interesting that you talked about, you started at the Weekly Standard Were you a Collegiate Network fellow?
2: I was, yes. It's a funny thing. At Columbia, uh, we didn't have a Collegiate Network paper. And the Collegiate Network, of course, is a network of conservative campus papers. So uh, in fact, the, the main paper at Columbia, the Columbia Spectator, was affiliated with the Collegiate Network. And that's how I became plugged into that organization. I also contributed to their national magazine, which was called Campus Magazine. And so CN uh, very generously uh, funded me for my first year at the Weekly Standard. And a little bit before that expired, I was uh, promoted or hired permanently on the staff.
3: So I was also a Collegiate Network Fellow. Congratulations. Um, We, We can
2: have this secret handshake now.
3: Yes, exactly. And the reason why I bring this up is that something that I think for a lot of folks observing conservatism and the world of conservatism from outside its boundaries is that Our experience of being kind of brought into, via the Collegiate Network and a lot of other organizations, being brought into the conservative movement via a very distinct recruitment process is not that unusual. And I've been talking a lot this week about conservatism, as I talk a lot about conservatism all the time, every day, for my entire life. And that conservatism, I think, in many ways, is a movement It's a movement. It's not just a set of ideas or an ideology. It is a movement. Can you talk about how the ideology of conservatism and the movement of conservatism relate to one another?
2: Well, that's a great question. Um, One thing uh, my studies and reading uh, has shown me is that it's very difficult to speak of conservatism as just a monolithic ideology. In fact... From the very beginning, there have been competing definitions of what a conservative is or what he or she believes in. Uh, A lot of these questions were kind of solved. Uh, by the foundation of National Review in November 1955. And for many decades, National Review was, as they like to say, the only game in town in terms of kind of propagating or, or communicating what a conservative consensus was. And that clearly is no longer the case. But the conservative movement, uh, the political expression of some of these ideas, really kind of came into being shortly after uh, the foundation of National Review. I kind of it to 1960, which was the um, Organization of Young Americans for Freedom and the publication of their founding charter, the Sharon Statement. Uh, Sharon, Connecticut is where it was signed on the front lawn of Bill Buckley's uh, uh, family home where he grew up. And uh, that same year in 1960 uh, sees the publication of Barry Goldwater's Conscience of a Conservative. And so Goldwater becomes really the um, central political figure of conservatism. At that time, he inherits a title from the deceased uh, Senator Robert Taft. And um, he is the one who tells uh, the convention in 1960, let's grow up conservatives, and eventually wins the nomination nine, uh, four years later.
3: So it's, it, it's interesting that you bring up Goldwater, because I think Goldwater was such a defining figure within the conservative movement, despite the fact that he lost tremendously badly in 1964 and there are a couple reasons for this one i think for you know i write a lot about african-american conservatives Mm -hmm. and i think for a lot of black conservatives who attended the 1964 republican national convention and goldwater basically making a state's rights argument against uh civil rights legislation and the experiences of say Legends like Jackie Robinson, who attended the 1964 Republican National Convention and had people trying to start fights with him, which seems, on a side note, like a bad thing to attempt to do as he was a very large, very strong, legendary baseball player. And it's interesting also that Goldwater legacy continues. I wrote a piece this week about... Uh, CPAC and the first CPAC in 1974 is a group of conservatives who are very upset at Richard Nixon, not just because of Watergate, but because he's not adequately conservative. They wanted Ronald Reagan this whole time. Ronald Reagan, you know, they wanted him to run in 68. They'd wanted him to run in 72. That's not what happened. Can you talk a little bit about Goldwater's positionality in the movement? Because I think that Now, as we observe conservatism, I think a lot of people are like, what happened to the party of Ronald Reagan? What happened to kind of that legacy? But for... Older conservatives, they weren't thinking—they were looking to Reagan as someone of one of their peers, but they were looking, you know, we want to be the party of Barry Goldwater.
2: Yeah, the joke is is that uh, Goldwater lost the 64 election, but it took 16 years to count the votes. And so Goldwater's defeat in 64, in a way, was a harbinger or a necessary loss uh, to pave the way for Reagan's victory in 1980, Goldwater's vote against the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is a burden that conservatism in America has had to carry ever since. This was a fraught decision on his part, actually. Um, it was one title, uh, the public accommodations title that he objected to, uh, that, and that uh, led to his vote against it later in his life, said how much he regretted that decision, but there's no question. That even, as you say, at the at the moment of the convention, his position there, uh, which really ran against the civil rights tradition in the Republican Party, um, uh, was a defining and, and contested moment. Um, Goldwater, later in his life, uh, became more libertarian.
3: Right. He he was talking a lot about gay people in the military when he was living in Arizona in the early 1990s. He he
2: became a cultural libertarian. Um, He had always been a kind of an economic one. Uh, But he was a very kind of cantankerous uh, person, charming in his way. And um, but I think by the end of his life, he had kind of alienated himself from the conservative movement at that point in the in late 80s uh, 90s, which had taken on a very uh socially conservative, even religious caste. And so um by the time of his death in 1998, uh, conservatives had various views of him, even though they they agreed that he was really kind of the one of the central political figures, next to Reagan, really, the most important political figure in American conservatism up until that point.
3: There seems to be a quest towards kind of a pure ideal of conservatism, which leads itself to purity spirals. I'm going to read you a quote. Um, When William F. Beckley began National Review, part of Some of his efforts were based on kind of not just defining what conservatism is, but defining what conservatism is not. So part of that involved frowning upon Alabama Governor George Wallace for being an obstinate segregationist, though Buckley's own racial past is questionable. Um, Part of that was discussing Ayn Rand, who he thought was an overly bellicose atheist. And a part of that was also talking about the John Birch Society, which was among the more paranoid right-leaning organizations of its time and still continues to be today. And when National Review repudiated uh, John Birch Society, you know one of Buckley's letters that he received was, "I've always believed you to be a true conservative. However, since you seem categorically to accept most of the left-wing programs, I'm beginning to doubt your sincerity." And it seems to me that as conservatives debate with one another about the one true conservatism, the one true faith, so to speak, it seems to be that even while we're having starting to have you know the influence of you know conservative populism there's still this overarching Drive to be more conservative, or to find whatever is truly conservative or pure conservatism. You know, you saw that with Mitt Romney going to CPAC in 2012 and describing himself as being severely conservative. To which you know, Rush Limbaugh and a bunch of folks, kind of in conservative media, were like, "No, you're not." We remember when you were in Massachusetts doing. Obviously, the drive for purity in movements is not uncommon, but it seems to be a very specific type of call to purity that happens within conservatism.
2: Well, on one level, it's a, a call to purity, um, uh, which, as you say, does happen in all movements and often happened in communist movements uh, in, in in America. You know, um, the sectarianism of the, uh, the Marxist-Socialist uh, movement in America is uh, there are whole volumes written about it. So that is common to movements in general, the sense that, well, if you don't agree with me on everything. You need to start your own group. Um, Irving Kristol had a line he liked to say, which is, you can't split rod and wood, which is that uh, these disagreements and even divisions uh, represent um, vitality of the movement. But I also think it stems from something deeper, which relates to to your first question and, and our first discussion, which is... No one really knows what conservatism is. Yes. And from the very beginning there were a lot of arguments in fact Frederick Hayek so I mentioned how I kind of dated it and I was following my tutor George H Nash in this but I, you know I dated it with the publication of Road to Serfdom but uh, later after encountering some of the new conservatives uh, such as Russell Kirk uh, Hayek writes an essay why I am not a conservative. And So, is the classical liberalism represented by Hayek and von Mises and Milton Friedman really conservative? Uh, well, Buckley thought so, uh, because I have a quote in my notes from 1971 where Buckley says that my conservatism is the conservatism of the two most recent, or rather 1977 maybe, um, two most recent uh, Nobel laureates, Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman. So that suggests a much more classically liberal. Conservatism? Is it the social conservatism that really came into being in the 1970s, this against the social policies of the expanding welfare state? Uh, Well, neoconservatives, while being um, on the side of the social conservatives in regards to social policies affecting the family and religion, uh, were much more comfortable with the welfare state in principle as a means of providing public goods, such as uh, pensions, unemployment insurance, even health insurance in the case of Ring Crystal. So uh, these types of arguments, um, we brought up uh, 64 in the Civil Rights Act, Um, one of the most important conservative thinkers, Harry Jaffa, who helped write Barry Goldwater's nominating speech uh, also was an intense believer in the Equality Clause of the Declaration of Independence and supported uh, the 64 Civil Rights Act. And Brent Bozell, um, who was Buckley's brother-in-law, famously took issue with Buckley's defense, infamous and rightly so defensive segregation, written in National Review 1957. So there are all these contested issues. There, there was always these debates within the conservative movement. Uh, there was, for many years, uh, a column in National Review called The Open Question, where all of these various thinkers could kind of duke it out. The question then arises, which is, what held them together. And I think fundamentally, it was an opposition to communism abroad and then to a sort of intrusive liberalism at home. Uh, But uh, even there, uh, they had people who were not part of the, say, conservative consensus as represented by National Review, uh, who who were criticizing them on those grounds as well.
0: Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. Having tough conversations with your kids is just part of being a parent. And sure, those convos might seem a bit intimidating, but they can also set your child up to go out there on their own. And one of those big talks should probably involve money, how to be responsible with it, how to earn it, and that it's not infinite. If you're looking for a way to put those lessons into action, you might want to check out Greenlight. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. You can send your kids instant money transfers, get real-time notifications of spending, manage chores, and automate allowance. My kid is only four, but a colleague of mine here in the Vox Media family uses the Greenlight card with his two boys, and he loves it. Plus, the Greenlight app also comes with games that teach kids money skills in a fun, memorable way. You can sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging, honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs and cushion footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout.
3: Let's shift forward a little bit because I think that something for people... Who have been observing conservatism or thinking about conservatism is the degree to which neoconservatism has fallen. I, I don't I'm not sure if it was really in favor exactly, but how much other conservatives have taken issue to neoconservatives and, so to speak, neocons. And I think that that is something that, in my view, really began to ar- arise with the shifting perception of the Iraq war specifically you know you start seeing this in like 2005 2006 not just coming from folks on the left because i think people on the left had been long calling bill crystal and others who they viewed as calling for this war as being warmongers so to speak but then you start seeing it from conservatives and obviously there've been branches of conservatism you know you paleo and others who have long spoken out against American intervention overseas. But the distaste for which much of the modern conservative movement and specifically kind of Trumpian conservatives have for neocons is really stark and somewhat overwhelming. So first, I'd love you to talk a little bit about neoconservatism, because I think, you know, there's that famous quote that a a neoconservative is a liberal who's been robbed by reality. And New neoconservatism in some ways began with a lot of folks who thought of themselves as being liberals, but then saw the events of the late 1960s and early 1970s and just kind of had this view that, you know, liberalism had left them behind in a sense. So first, I'd love you to talk a little bit more about neoconservatism and how neoconservatism has been positioned now, especially it seems to be an unpopular line of thought, so to speak.
2: Right. Well, just as with conservatism, uh, we need to start breaking down what we mean when we talk about neoconservatism. The way I kind of categorize it is by looking at the three chief neoconservative publications, and each of them represents a different iteration, Uh, indeed in some cases a different generation of neoconservatism, and so let's start at the beginning, and that is with The Public Interest, which was the magazine co-founded by Irving Kristol and Daniel Bell in 1965. It was a quarterly that published until 2005. This was the original neoconservative publication. Bell, Kristol, and their... Uh, Friend and contributor and later co-editor with Crystal Nathan Glazer, who was recently deceased, were actually ex-communists. They're ex-Trotskyists. They were not Stalinists. Um, but they were Trotskyites in college, and then later moved into a type of critical liberalism, uh, which eventually led them to be extremely skeptical of the government interventions of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs. And so the public interest represented a very uh, skeptical, empirical, and uh, essentially mirrorist approach to public policy. That is, uh, Bell, Crystal, and Glazer and there, another friend and contributor uh, and later senator, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, were not, as I s- mentioned earlier, against the welfare state per se. They felt though that the great society and subsequent liberal programs were not s- helping, <laughs> were not achieving the desired results, were not helping the people that these programs are trying to help. And so issue after issue of the public interest was devoted to kind of an analyzing these social policies and seeing where they went wrong. It later. became much more interested in questions of character. And what they found was so much of the success of a public policy depended on the character of the individuals affected by it. And then you had to look at, well, how do we shape character? And that comes down to really the pre-political institutions of family, religion, uh, neighborhood. So that's neoconservatism one. And that neoconservatism had nothing to do with foreign policy. In fact, foreign policy was banned from its pages because the editors had such varying opinions regarding what was then the most important foreign policy issue, the war in Vietnam. However, there's what we might call neoconservatism too, and that's represented by the publication commentary uh, founded in 1945 and uh, still ongoing today. I write a monthly column for it. It appears monthly, so I guess I write a column for it. Commentary's longtime editor, Norman Pothoritz, he was 10 years younger uh, than Crystal. Kristol born in 1920, Pothoritz born in 1930, so he's younger. He went to Columbia University where his mentor was the literary critic Lionel, Lionel Trilling. Pothoritz was never a, a Marxist or communist. He was just a liberal in the Trilling mold and more of a literary critic. He becomes editor in 1960. What he finds um, basically in beginning in the 1970s, Uh, is a deep aversion to basically liberal and radical critiques of the Vietnam War. In his view, these critiques uh, assumed the character of an anti-Americanism, and this repulsed him. And so on the foreign policy there, Podhoretz started uh, basically advocating for a more idealistic American foreign policy, but also one that had serious weight to it in terms of power politics, America's uh, defense expenditures. America uh, should not come home, in the words of George McGovern. And um, neoconservatism too was really a protest against McGovernism uh, in in its foreign policy dimension, but also in its uh, domestic dimension, which was um, basically encapsulated in what was called the new politics of the student rebellion and counterculture. So, uh, Podhorts became a neoconservative, one might say, by Vietnam abroad and radicalism um, abroad, but also the counterculture at home. And this led to uh, basically support from Ronald Reagan in 1980 because Reagan, to the commentary crowd, represented a much more fulsome American foreign policy. uh, One that was going to not only try to contain uh, the Soviets, but also push them back and uh, eventually defeat them. Finally, and I know I've gone on for a while, but finally, there's Neoconservatism 3, which is one that you're, I think, referring to in your question. And that's the uh, neoconservatism represented by the Weekly Standard magazine, uh, edited by Bill Kristol until 2016, and then edited by uh, Stephen F. Hayes for its last few years. Uh, Basically, it published between September 1995 and December 2018. What's funny about it is that at the time that the the standard was founded, neoconservatism was kind of considered passé because Irving Kristol, Bill's dad, and Norman Podhoretz had more or less just become regular conservatives, um, and in fact. Todd writes in 1996 an essay called Neoconservatism, a eulogy, saying all that we stood for, basically the historical conditions that led us to our political uh, views uh, have dissipated and we are more or just less been incorporated into the conservative mainstream such as it was. What happens very quickly, though, is that Bill Kristol and his um, kind of co author and uh, influential contributing editor to the, the standard, Robert Kagan, become associated with a foreign policy that they describe as neo Reaganite, which basically is uh, a foreign policy of interventionism in the service of American ideals and democ- democracy promotion. They, they have a reference to, I think, benign hegemony in one of the uh, fundamental uh, essays they wrote describing their position. And uh, this is the form of neoconservatism that becomes associated with uh, the Iraq War of 2003. And that's the neoconservatism uh, that Donald Trump uh, really campaigned against, the interventionism that he campaigned against in 2016 and repudiated. And what's funny is that the Crystal Kagan position on... The Iraq War in 2003 was, in fact, the consensus view of the American foreign policy community and, and the Republican Party. George W. Bush, um, who actually launched the war, uh, was not a neoconservative of any iteration. Um, so this was a much more uh, conventional opinion in 2003 in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks of 2001 uh, than I think is remembered today. Uh, at the moment, as you say, the Weekly Standard doesn't exist, and um, Crystal is the most prominent uh, Never Trumper, and uh, so uh, they were—they exist probably on the margins of the conservative movement uh, and the Republican Party. But so much depends, I think, on whether Donald Trump is reelected to the future of this version of of, uh, neoconservatism. It is very possible, in fact, likely, that there will be a fourth neoconservatism Uh, because just the way politics works, uh, people change their views over time. And people might start on the left and end up on the right, and others might start on the right and end up on the left.
3: I think it's—I'm glad you brought up um, George W. Bush and the Iraq War, because a a bunch of people have been kind of talking about how, you know, at CPAC and at other places, it appears as if the George W. Bush administration has been memory holed so to speak. You know, you saw people talking about uh, Trump being the most pro-life Republican president we've had, which made a lot of—you know, I think uh, Dave Weigel said on Twitter, you know, like, what the hell happened for those eight years of the Bush administration? And I think that that really gets to something about how the Bush administration, for many, I think, people who think of themselves as being conservatives, but have kind of the more Trumpian ilk of conservatives, the Bush administration has become, in some ways, part of, even though George W. Bush, as you say, was not a neocon, the Bush administration has become kind of part of neocon parlance, that that was part and parcel with neoconservatism. And I've written before. I wrote a piece um, a couple of years ago for The New York Times on the term conservative. And one something I, I've noticed is that Tucker Carlson wrote in Politico early in 2016 that Republican voters seem to know a lot about Trump more than the people who run their party. They know he isn't a conventional ideological conservative. They seem relieved. And I wanted to ask you how much of the support for Trump from people who think of themselves as being conservative was in some way a reaction to the Republican Party apparatus and what they may view of the, of that apparatus support for kind of the Bush administration's foreign policy and kind of this new conservative ideal because it seemed to me that a lot of people who are very supportive of Trump how much they strongly dislike Many members of the Republican Party is because a lo- it seemed as if the Republican Party's base and the Republican Party's kind of thought leaders, so to speak, seemed to have a massive disconnect.
2: Right, um, that was clearly uh, revealed in in 2016 and what happened there. Uh, I think so much depends on how the public views the success or failure of a given presidency. Ronald Reagan was viewed as a successful president. Uh, Indeed, even uh, for a time, it was just by Republicans and conservatives, but by the moment where you have Barack Obama in 08 talking about how he, in some ways, wanted to emulate uh, Reagan's um, influence over the course of politics, you can see that even Li- Reagan's critics uh, recognized his successes in some ways. So Reagan was viewed as a success, uh, indeed, he, in many ways, George H.W. Bush's election in 1988 is considered the third term of Ronald Reagan. Um, George W. Bush, uh, I would say at the moment is viewed as a a failure. And I think that that uh, view is not only um, limited to his liberal critics who were uh, fierce uh, throughout his presidency, but also increasingly many um, conservatives as well as Republican voters. Um, This is a presidency whose second term in particular uh, between 2005 and 2009 with Obama's inauguration um, was just one crisis after another. And in some ways, Bush's presidency irritated various segments of conservatism. If you had been a, say, going back to Hayek, a, a more classically liberal limited government conservative. You were upset about the rise in government spending uh, under the Bush administration. If you were a uh, religious conservative, it's true, you would have liked plenty of George Bush's policies. You would have liked the way he discussed religion in the public sphere. You would have liked his personal comportment, uh, but you would have maybe gone become a little distrustful of him beginning in 2004, uh, when he only reluctantly and late in the campaign backed the federal marriage amendment. This would be the constitutional amendment forbidding uh, same-sex marriage. And then in 2005, he nominates Harriet Myers to the Supreme Court. You become very suspicious of him uh, then. Uh, So you begin to have some doubts about him. Um, If you're a foreign policy conservative, You're probably going to have criticisms of him. Remember the the Republican Party traditionally has been associated with realism in foreign affairs and um, actually a um, a reluctance to engage uh, in overseas uh, conflict. So there were plenty of conservatives and Republicans who were skeptical of the Iraq intervention, um, but supported it because of the exigencies of the time. Uh, And then when the intervention uh, became bogged down in counterinsurgency, uh, there were Republicans and conservatives and neoconservatives who were critical of the conduct of the war. And finally, you know, also if you're a limited government type, you'd be upset uh, over the uh, response to the financial crisis and the bailouts. And then two, if you're a populist conservative, if you're really growing out of the new right tradition of the 1970s, um, you're going to be upset at George W. Bush's uh, two attempts at comprehensive immigration reform in his second term, uh, as well as his kind of free trade, Uh, policies, the Central American Free Trade Act, and as well uh, um, his push for the Dubai ports deal. So I'd say by the time that George W. left office, he had um, alienated himself from many people within the Republican Party, let's not forget one reason that uh, the current president's uh, approval ratings remain within that band in the mid to low 40s is because he he retains strong approval among the Republican party he hasn't alienated republican voters in the in the same way that George W had done by the by the end of his second term
3: you know and i think that it's something to be said about you know when i when i write about conservatism there are a lot of people who respond to me with kind of like okay you know you're talking about this ideological conservatism you're talking about the ideas that people are discussing and arguing about but what are they doing on the ground? And what are, you know, the what are base conservatives thinking? And I think we start to see this conversation taking that turn when we talk about populism. And I know you brought up kind of the new right, but um I want to read a, a paragraph from Ross Duth at his New York Times column I was talking about the era of limited government is over. For years now, conservative critics and sociologists and intellectuals have been acknowledging that the answers might be no, that the country's once-rich associational and civic and religious life is declining and dissolving, that corporate America embraces conservative slogans to keep taxes low and unions weak, but otherwise seems post-patriotic and performatively woke, that the silent majority of hardworking, pious, culturally conservative blue-collar families is now essentially defunct. He's talking in about the kind of the rise of populism and the, you know, Tucker Carlson, a bunch of other folks on the right having these conversations about like maybe the government should be doing more. Maybe the government – what is the purpose of government? Maybe it should be intervening to make family life specifically easier for quote-unquote normal Americans. And I will leave it up to others to decide what some mean by normal Americans. But – I think about CPAC a lot as kind of you know the base's message to the world of conservative conservatism, and you know we've got we've shifted from a time at which Ron Paul, a deeply libertarian former presidential candidate, won multiple straw polls at CPAC, to being to CPAC being a place where one you know everyone's generally focused on Trump, but where this populist messaging is much more popular. And I kind of want you to take us back a little bit to kind of that new right of the 1970s. But then this emergence of populism and kind of populist attitudes, that seems to be a direct rebuke of not just the Bush administration, but kind of elite conservatism.
2: Right. I mean, just in terms of the Bush administration, one would say that it was not necessarily a small government administration. So if you're rebuking the Bush administration, you might want to be a, a small government type. And of course, I, this is really, I think, the shift that Ross is describing in some ways from the Tea Party conservatism, which it kind of uh, talked about the 10th Amendment, talked about the limited government states' rights uh, against federal power, talked about uh, shrinking government and such, and now uh, now has embraced uh, Donald Trump, who is, uh, you know, he, he wants to, he's the budgets he has submitted cut spending. They're just not going to be enacted into law. Um, what I think revealing of the Tea Party was from those protests. You know this idea uh, that was mocked at in times um, by the press, which was at that sign that one Tea Partier held up, saying "Keep your hands off my Medicare." Now this reveals there that even in these uh, limited government uh, movements, um, there is a reluctance to take on the core institutions of the welfare state, and this is a long running thing in American politics, I think it's George Will who, who likes to say that you know, Americans are rhetorically Jeffersonian, but operationally Hamiltonian. We like to talk about limited government, uh, but at the end of the day, we want, we want our benefits and uh, we like things pretty much the way they are. We're small-seat conservative. We don't want to see radical change. The new right uh, movement in the 1970s, which I think is connected a lot to the Trump movement, uh, really came out uh, from exactly that a, a rebellion against government intervention in family life uh, in um, in the most private decisions involving uh, contraceptives, uh, reproduction, where you where your kids go to school. And then, of course, a sense of um, violated personal security that came with the rise in uh, crime uh, during the decade. Uh, you know, uh, consumption of drugs among the youth. Um, th- the new right leaders like Phyllis Schlafly, Richard Vigory. Paul Weirich, and then uh, theorists such as Kevin Phillips and uh, Patrick Buchanan were able to associate all of these things with uh, federal government intervention, and so we were able to direct that protest against the federal government. Um, In many ways, this strain of populism uh, predates the 1970s. You can see it in this support for Joseph McCarthy in the beginning of the 50s. Um, and it also postdates it. I think there are ways that you can understand Ronald Reagan's appeal as a, as a populist, uh, uh, not just a, a limited government conservative. Uh, and then, of course, there's Trump, uh, who is a populist through and through.
3: So I think that that gets back to kind of a baseline question that I've had while doing this work is... If conservatives don't agree on what makes someone conservative or what conservatism really is, then what good is it to discuss whether or not a particular candidate is conservative? Because at some point, you know, you kind of get into that messy area in which either no one is a conservative or everyone's kind of a conservative. And I think that that came up a lot you know, when you saw... The never-Trumpers or Trump-skeptical Republicans talking about Trump, you know, saying, like, he's never voiced any conservative views. I've written this, and a lot of people did, that— For example, on social conservative issues, uh, say abortion, Trump's views seem to be kind of what you would think conservatives would say if you had never encountered any. Some might remember uh, Trump's interview with Chris Matthews, I think in 2015, in which he said that women who had abortions should be punished. And the response he got from anti-abortion groups was like, "No, no, no, that's not what we think. That's not what we think. But it didn't seem to matter that his internal conservatism was of no real It didn't matter to people who think of themselves as being deeply conservative. So, you know, and I think that there are a lot of folks on the left who are kind of like, all we do is argue about who's more liberal than who and who is more like. And, you know, they look at the right and they're like, they nominated this guy and he won the presidency while not adhering to the views we've been told that are conservatism. So, you know, where does that leave us? Where does it leave us in the story of conservatism when no one can really agree on who gets to be a conservative?
2: I actually think Trump ran much more as a conservative than maybe other conservatives I know think. Uh, Let me explain why. I was there, I followed Trump in 2011 when he was uh, flogging the birther thing and thinking of running for president. And I went with. I uh, was there in New Hampshire when he visited, and I was struck uh, by a few things. One was just how much attention he drew to himself, and the whole media scrum. I was also struck by two more things. One was that was same day that he visited New Hampshire was when the Obama administration released the long form uh, certificate, and we were at the diner. Trump was visiting at a diner in New Hampshire. Uh, when, uh, the, I think it was Robert Gibbs at that point. I could be wrong. could have been Jay Carney, but, um, they come out with the, with the birth certificate uh, on television and Trump was in a private meeting when that actually happened. So we were all interested in the press. Well, how is he going to react uh, when he sees this on the TV? So he came out of the private room. He looked at it on the TVs, his chin jutted out, you know, in that lower lip expression he always has. And then he turned to us and he said, he wouldn't have done it without me. And you saw there Trump's ability to immediately adapt and always take credit for whatever is happening. Um, The second thing that struck me was that same, it was at that same diner. He then moves back out into the crowd uh, in order to to greet, mix it up with the patrons of the diner. And I just happened to be, just because it was so crowded in there, somehow I'm kind of, the crowd kind of pushes me to where I'm literally as far away from Trump as as I am from you now, but we're in front of a booth of kind of looks like retirees of New Hampshire. I mean, I don't know who else would be there uh, in the middle of the day or whatever. Uh, and Trump assumes the same thing I did, because as he's talking to them and smiling, he goes, not going to touch Social Security, am I, guys? So he knew then, too, that um, the push uh, in some quarters to not only protest the great society, but also to try to dissect or um, deconstruct the new deal was just a non-starter in American politics. Uh, At that same time in 2011 was when Donald Trump announced he was pro-life. And I think that move in retrospect was the beginning of him really seriously thinking of running for president. He ended up not running in 2012, of course, uh, but he obviously did in 2016. Um, and he understood that he could not, unlike uh, I've, probably from watching his friend Rudy Giuliani a few years earlier run and fail, he would not be able to win the nomination of the Republican Party without being a pro-life candidate. So that happens in 2011. What else does he do? Well, he becomes a firm supporter of Second Amendment rights uh, throughout the 2016 campaign. He becomes a devoted supply sider, a tax cutter. That you know, he has Larry Kudlow and Stephen Moore write his campaign proposal. Art Laffer, the founders of supply side, and then of course now he has Larry Kudlow chair his uh, council of um, the National Economic Council. So pro life, Second Amendment, tax cuts. Okay, well I'm starting to see a theme. These are all very conservative positions. What does he do when Justice Scalia dies suddenly? Well, very quickly, he works with the Federal Society to come up with a list of originalist judges that he promises to nominate to the bench. Okay, if you're a social conservative or a constitutionalist, that's pretty good. Well, where does he depart from the Republican elites? Uh, Mainly it's on that question of intervention, which by that point in 2016, as you point out, even most Republicans had, had shifted toward Trump. It was on the question of trade. Where it was always unusual that Republican support for free trade was much softer than was reflected in the um, uh, party's upper echelons, and then it was finally in immigration. But you know, immigration was an issue on which he was much closer to the Republican voters than, say, the Republican Senate was because. Marco Rubio had tried to right. once again to work with Chuck Schumer and President Obama in 2013 to get comprehensive immigration reform and failed. And part of that was just a total absence of support for this plan in the Republican held house. So I think on all of these issues, Trump was actually running as a conservative. For me, the, the critique of Trump during that campaign that was substantive was the one about his character uh, and lack of experience. And, um, that of course uh, was overruled uh, by the by the electorate in on election day or ignored or politely kind of avoided
3: it, it just it seems interesting to me that by taking on not necessarily kind of the underpinnings of those belief systems you know not having a deep let's say you know a deep biblical understanding of the issues of life, not having a, you know, I was deeply enmeshed in the gun rights issue, and I have a very complicated view of Heller or something like that, but just by able to say, like, I am pro-life because that's what voters like. I am pro-Second Amendment because that's what voters like. I am pro-supply-side economic theory because... That's what I've been told voters like. He was able to assume the mantle of conservatism without having to do any of the work of being a conservative.
2: Well, I think that was because so many Republican voters had uh, basically conceived of the problem as this, which is for decades, they had supported politicians who could give all of the eloquent explanations that you refer to, but then never really did anything for them as soon right, as Right, that were kind in, of
3: like, what have you conserved? Because I think that that's something, um, you know, I, I've always been interested that the the growth of the so-called alt right, a lot of their ire was not aimed at the left, but at the right for not having "quote unquote" conserved anything. And I'm I'm using air quotes, which doesn't really make any sense <laughs> in a podcast, on a podcast. But yeah. just just imagine I am doing air quotes.
2: There was a feeling that the Republican leadership had failed uh, the Republican voter. Um, this comes up again and again. It's. Part of the reason that um, Ronald Reagan was able to come as close as he did to defeating Jerry Ford and uh, for the nomination in 1976, um, and it it was one reason why Goldwater was able to basically be drafted and, into and winning the nomination in '64. Um, the Republican voters become skeptical of their leadership, and. Um, and, and so this manifests itself every so often in a desire for people who are um, kind of uh, out of that leadership or who come from outside. And that was clear in that, that was clear in as early in, as 2015 that there, that the outsider candidate uh, would do well. It just happened to be Trump. I almost think that there's something similar happening in liberal and progressive circles now with, in relation to the 2020 nomination that there's a desire for, you know, somebody other than the same old options uh, for someone new. Um, And that could maybe lead to unexpected results just as it did two years ago.
0: Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kid's shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area.
3: So I wanted to, you know, you've done a lot of work on Ronald Reagan, and it's it's interesting to me that um, Ronald Reagan holds such a giant place and conservative memory, you know, not necessarily because of what he did, um, because I think that there are a lot of Reagan's policies, and I think it comes up a lot when you talk to kind of the immigration hawk conservatives who are very, still very upset about Reagan's immigration policies from the mid-1980s, but not not what he did, but what he meant to the conservative movement. Do you see that changing or shifting in any way? Because I think that you know he's now taken on this place in which it's not necessarily about who he was, but w- what he meant to the movement.
2: It might be shifting. I think Trump has basically risen to Reagan's level in the eyes of many conservatives, uh, and I know that might stun a lot of the audience. But if Trump wins re-election, he will be at the same uh, level. As Reagan, I think, in the minds of a lot of Republicans, um, do I mean, how often do Democrats look back at FDR? I mean, as you, there is just this problem: as you get further removed from uh, the presidency, maybe you think about it a little bit less. That's not a problem for me because I've, you know, I'm an amateur historian. But um, so Ronald Reagan and FDR are probably, the, in my view, the two most important presidents of the 20th century. One created the New Deal; the other significantly modified it in some ways or shifted the the course of events. And I think it's interesting that, you know, I mentioned Obama earlier and uh, his ref- his re- re- reference to Reagan in 2008, where he said he wanted to be a president as influential as Reagan. I don't think that's actually the way it it worked out. I mean, Obama was able to achieve the Affordable Care Act, and that seems to be a durable part of his legacy, at least again, under the modifications that have, that have uh, been made to it and they've been significant ones, um, most recently with the uh, abandonment of the mandate. But nonetheless it, something like the ACA will hold. The other aspects of Obama's legacy were, were very infirm and, and don't I, Trump has basically dismantled all of them. Um, so uh, Trump's significance is, is real. Uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, oh, I, uh, one of the things that fascinates me about Ronald Reagan is, I feel he's kind of like Superman. He's this alien being that kind of landed in the middle of Kansas and uh just took over the conservative movement uh you know he he didn't become a Republican until he was fifty one years old uh he was an f d r Democrat he has a note in his diary where he says, "You know I'm being attacked as a someone who's out to repudiate f d r but they don't understand I voted for f d r four times, and my real goal is to." is to oppose the Great Society, not the New Deal. And yet Reagan always had this belief that, look, if you share my I, my ideas, good, join me. I'm not necessarily going to share yours. And so he was able to appeal to a wide variety of people, as long as they bought into the central Reaganite premise. And what is that premise? It has to do with American exceptionalism. It has to do with with America as the last stand for freedom uh, on the earth. And it has to do, and something he brings up in several speeches, which I find fascinating. Reagan doesn't think of politics in terms of left or right. He thinks of it in terms, it's not horizontal axis, it's the vertical axis. It's control or lack of control. Are you being able to maximize the choice in your life and become the individual you want to be? Or are you being pushed down by central authority? This is a remarkable remarkable way to view politics in, in, in my opinion. Uh, and it lends itself to to, I think, a wide wide appeal. Um, and also allows himself to become populist because if the central authority is encroaching on your, on your life in various ways, well then that populist rebellion is something that he is going to be able to capture the energy of. So I think it's important, even if Reagan might be in the process of being eclipsed by Donald Trump in the Republican Party and conservative movement, I think it's very important for conservatives to go back to Reagan and think about him seriously, not just as a successful politician, which he was, but actually as a political thinker, um, which no one really gives him credit for, but, but it's remarkable to me uh, the continuity of his thought, uh, even when he was a liberal Democrat to, to the day he said his goodbye to America and his you know, 1994 revelation that he had Alzheimer's.
3: So it, it, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the idea of American exceptionalism, because I think that was something that for a lot of conservatives who have opposed Trump, kind of the never Trumpers, the fact that Trump had no adherence to American exceptionalism whatsoever and just repeatedly said things like, we've done things just as bad as they have, which, you know, it's one of those things that like that is both true and also generally not what conservative politicians talk about. And yet that seemed to be something that maybe it was taken kind of like, well, you know, you take this along with the things we like about Trump. Or it was something that really, I think, appealed in some sense to kind of the, um, Kind of the foreign policy realists of conservatism. So, can you talk about that? Because it seems as if, in many ways, Trump is a direct it stands in direct opposition to that view of America. You know, kind of the "It's Morning in America" 1984 version of Ronald Reagan.
2: Yes, uh, this is a uh, Trump's um, comfort with uh, strongmen is uh, new uh, <laughs> and uh, unusual. Um, the type of person that appeals to, I don't think constitute a majority of Republicans or even conservatives. There, there's definitely a minority on the right that does like that. Um, I'm not just I'm not sure how numerous they are. It's one of those aspects of Trump that I think discomfits a lot of Republicans whenever he says something like, Well, we we're just as bad or we do that too, or I take Kim Jong-un at his word, you know. I mean, it would take a team of experts to psychologize Donald Trump, and I I'm against psychologizing him. I would just say I think sometimes he says these things because he views himself in in a process of continual negotiation with tough guys. And so he's like doing a solid for Kim Jong-un to say, oh, I take you at your word. Um, if Trump is reelected, there will be changes to the Republican Party as we un- understood it up until 2016. I think right now we're in this moment of flux where he uh, is remarkably popular among Republicans and among large, large parts of the conservative movement, um, even if still viewed skeptically by most conservative intellectuals. And it's we're not sure how the story is going to turn out if he's a one-term president and viewed more as a Jimmy Carter than a Ronald Reagan. Well, I think you will find that conservatism and republicanism go back to a slight modification of the pre-Trump status quo. If Trump is reelected and he becomes a two-term president, then like I say, I think he will be viewed as nipping at Reagan's heels as the central republican slash conservative political figure. Uh, of our era, and uh, you will begin. To, I then, I think, you begin to see changes in the Republican posture towards things such as border security, immigration reform, and trade. Those, as well as foreign policies, those were the three parts where Trump was always most at odds with Republican elites: um, immigration, trade, and America's role in the world. And we're seeing him struggle against Republicans in Congress over these issues, if you consider the fact that there is conservative opposition in the Senate to his emergency declaration on the border. Uh, The Senate has already expressed its skepticism of his tariffs and trade wars. And of course, also the recent McConnell McConnell Amendment saying that we should not precipitously withdraw from Afghanistan. Um, If Trump wins a second term, I do think you'll see a turn of the party toward his positions. Who is elected matters, uh, and the nominees and or the presidents do change their party. and for, So that's for me is, this, is the real question here. Is is Trump's relation to the Republican Party like Jimmy Carter's or like Ronald Reagan's? I have to say at this point in his term, it's, it's more like the latter.
3: So I think now is the time at which you offer our listeners uh, three book recommendations. Um, I'm very look, much looking forward to hear what you hearing what you recommend.
2: Well, that's great. The conversation took a turn uh, away from what I thought we were going to discuss. So uh, um, let me just start with the book on neoconservatism, which is called... Neoconservatism by Irving Kristol. It's still in print. You should be able to find it on Amazon. It was published in 1995. That's the best introduction, I think, to what neoconservatism was is in its first iteration. Another book uh, that's I think I just mentioned him once in this conversation, but I do think is important uh, for people to understand kind of the fault line in American conservatism between. Those who think the Declaration of Independence is central to the American Founding, and those who believe that the Constitution is more important, and this is Jaffa's uh, basically analysis of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And Jaffa comes on the side of the proposition; he's the propositionalist. That is to say, when Lincoln speaks at Gettysburg of the proposi- that we are a government devoted to the proposition that all men are created equal. This is the most important part of the founding, um, and this is a controversial position within American conservatism. Uh, and there's an ongoing debate about: is that really true? Is the Declaration really as central as as we we're taught? Is saying you're created equal lead inexorably to a desire for substantive equality? I think it's an important book. It's also a fantastic book to read. And then, if you're interested, uh, if you're interested in populism and the new right and kind of the roots of where uh, Donald Trump came from, I recommend a book by Patrick Buchanan. Uh, it came out in 2017. It's called Nixon's White House Wars, and it's a fascinating history of the Nixon presidency by a man who was his right-hand man, and uh, it gives a, a look into things such as Nixon's so-called Southern strategy, uh, to the beginnings of the critique of the mainstream media, which was really through Nixon's first vice president, Spiro Agnew, in a series of spe- speeches Buchanan wrote. Uh, for did Agnew. Buchanan
3: write uh, nattering nabobs of negativism. No, that
2: phrase was written actually by William Safire.
3: Okay, uh, the, the, it's the a good other phrase. Nixon
2: speechwriter who was the liberal conservative Nixon speech. Nixon had a set of speechwriters. There right. was the conservative conservative Buchanan. There was kind of the libertarian liberal conservative Sapphire, and then there was the liberal Republican Ray Price. And see, he would depending on what speech he would have a different guy write the speech. Buchanan and, and I think Tim Alberta Politico did a great piece on him. All the controversy surrounding Buchanan he really does emerge and and has emerged in the in kind of the background of the Trump administration he's emerged as um, a very important conservative thinker perhaps not given his due and maybe sometimes for good reason not given his due but that's a it is actually a very good work of history that he wrote in 2017.
3: I've always thought that uh, Buchanan's 1992 Republican National Convention speech was a lot more telling than I think a lot of people have let on and and a lot more influential. On specifically kind of where a portion of the conservative base was thinking and would think to go um, on a lot of issues
2: you know it's funny about that speech it was polled um, right after he gave it and the initial polling was quite support uh, quite supportive of the culture war speech Uh, by the end of the week uh, the media uh, had really attacked it and the polling began to shift and of course George HW Bush uh, who Buchanan had to kind of challenge, was very upset because it ran against his whole theory of, you know, a thousand points of light. Right. And, and a kinder, gentler nation.
3: Well, thank you so much, Matthew Cattinetti of the Washington Free Beacon for joining me. It's been a really interesting and enjoyable conversation. Thank you. Thank you to Matthew for being here. Thank you to our producer and engineer, Jeff Geld. And as loyal Vox Media Network podcast listeners, we have a request for you. We want to hear what you have to say about our podcasts, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, what we should stop doing, and what we should do more of. So visit voxmedia.com slash podsurvey to take the survey and tell us what you think. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. We will be back in a couple of days.